You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. You know, business drops off quite a bit in January, and then the cooks and everyone are looking for hours. So it was kind of an opportune time for me to say, I will be the interim nanny, Mr. Mom, or whatever you want to call it. So, um, And again, the kids are in school all day. So my justification for taking on that new role was to, to train for the marathon. It allowed me to, to do the long runs and, and do the training that was required. Then from there, swim over to Cushing's Island, um, run on Cushing's, swim then to Fort Scammell on the end of House Island, um, traverse the fort uh, remnants, and then come down onto the beach on the east end of, uh, of uh, House Island, and then finally the swim over to Peaks Island and the finish line. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 266, Racing Maine, airing for the first time on Sunday, October 23rd, 2016. Many athletes set training goals according to upcoming events like marathons and triathlons. Today we speak with chef and restaurateur Steve Corey about his experiences with races such as Beach to Beacon and the Paris Marathon. We also discussed this past summer's first annual Casco Bay Island Swim Run with founder, triathlete, and coach, Jeff Cole. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough, and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. It's always a great pleasure to spend time with people whose um, food I enjoy in the restaurant setting, but whose company I enjoy outside of the restaurant setting. And this individual is Steve Corey, who with his wife Michelle opened 555 in Portland in 2003. Steve has received several accolades, including Food and Wine's Best New Chef in 2007 and Maine's Chef of the Year in 2011. In March 2011, Steve and Michelle opened Petite Jacqueline, a more casual French bistro named after Michelle's grandmother. In Petite's first year, it was nominated for a James Beard Award for Best New Restaurant in America. Last year, the Corries opened Portland Patisserie in downtown Portland. Actually, right like two streets down from us, I think. Yeah, block away. In the in the old port. Correct. So Quarter thank you for doing that. It's pretty delicious stuff that you have Great. down happy, there. Happy to have it there for you and for me as well. Yeah. So you are doing really interesting work, and you just keep adding to it. It's uh, from what I can tell you and Michelle. In addition to you have two sons, I believe. Two sons. Two sons, but you also work like all the time. Yes, well, as the owners of now three restaurants, it's kind of, and, and two of which are open day and two of which are open at night, so that we're effectively open. One of them is always open, you know, from, from early in the morning to late at night. So um, that kind of dictates the, the work schedule to some degree because everything is 
always changing. But uh, and then the, the two little boys, Seamus is nine years old now, and Finnegan is seven. They are they're in school full time for most of the year, but they certainly keep us busy as well. So how is it that you are able to do things like run the Paris Marathon last April and also run the Beach to Beacon for the last three years? How do you incorporate that into your life? Well, interesting question. Um, Up until January of this year, we had a full-time nanny that, uh, well, she didn't live with us. She stayed with us on occasion. She worked a lot of hours and really was... um, hugely instrumental in helping to raise our our sons while we endured quite a workload. She had a baby and um, as of December last year she went off on on maternity leave and uh, we were closing Petite Jacqueline in January. Uh, December 31st was our last day at the old location in Longfellow Square and we knew there would be a, a good you know period of time to find a new location for it and 555 staff was 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 solid we come out of the holiday season and you know business drops off quite a bit in january and then the cooks and everyone are looking for hours so it was kind of an opportune time for me to say i will be the interim nanny mr mom whatever you want to call it so um and again the kids are in school all day so my justification for taking on that new role was to, to train for the marathon. It allowed me to, to do the long runs and, and do the training that was required um, to, to actually get to the finish line. So I was able to train while Michelle was at work and the kids were at school and then I got them off the bus and took care of their after school homework and activities and dinner and lunches and all that. And so. Uh, that's really why I did it because I think I would have gone crazy out of my mind if I didn't have something to work towards. Now, have you always been a runner? No, I haven't actually. Um, I've always kind of adhered to some sort of fitness program, um, really self-driven to tell you the truth, uh, just to kind of try and offset working in food and also beer But prior to working as a chef I was I was a brewer um, and you know eating and drinking it certainly can get ahead of you really quickly so I was always trying to offset what I like to do for work and leisure which is eat and drink beer um, by staying staying somewhat fit what about your younger years before you even got to the place of working were you an athlete uh, I was in in high school um, and coming up. I did. I played soccer. I played lacrosse. I played tennis. I played basketball. I played a little hockey. Uh, so there's always some team sport coming up through through school and whatnot. In college, not so much. Um, college, I just kind of spent most of my time skiing um, when I should have been in class, really. Um, but that was enough to kind of keep me motivated to stay in shape as well. And just prior to having Seamus, our first child, I, I kind of let it go. And I was, I was about, you know, 30 pounds heavier than I am right now. And I actually started to, to feel kind of terrible. I had heartburn and I just, I just wasn't in, in good shape. And I could certainly feel the effects of it. And it was such an eye opener when Seamus arrived and I was like, wow, this is, this is tough with the restaurants and lack of sleep and this and that. I said, I got to put it back together. And so kind of got myself back on track and have stayed relatively on track since then. 
What was that transition like? It sounds like you did a lot of team sports and then you've gotten into what's really most of the time a very solo sport. It is, and it's 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 a good question. So it's funny you ask that because I do a lot of mountain biking as well, which is pretty much on my own or with one other, or I'm out in the kayak my, myself or one other. But I do play basketball. Um, I'm part of a pickup basketball league called the GOBL. It's Gen- Gentlemen Only Basketball League, which the loose requirements are that is that you sh- supposed to be 40 years old and a father, and relatively mild mannered. It's competitive basketball. Um, with a bunch of guys that we play every Tuesday night and uh, there's probably 20 or 25 of us on the on the list and you know as many as 15 or so will show up any given Tuesday and we'll play we'll play basketball for two hours and and I get a lot of uh, satisfaction from that from the team there that fills that niche of that team sport and that camaraderie and um, but otherwise I just I compete against myself Really, I'll set goals for myself in terms of running and say, okay, I want to come in at this time. And the next time out, I'm trying like crazy to, to beat that time. Not so much in the kayak or on the mountain bike, but certainly with the running. Having been a runner also for decades now, which I hate to say because that just ages me in such an incredible way, but um, one of the things I notice that's very interesting is the crowd energy around the races. And I've done, I've been in both camps. I've raced, I've run really hard to race and I've run really mostly just to hang out with buddies. And But there's something that happens on race day. You can't help but be impacted by the energy of it. No, it's, it's, it is really unbelievable feeling actually. And uh, it's, you wouldn't think that you'd get nervous for, for running because I mean, you just know how to run, but you do, you get charged up when you're kind of approaching, even when you get up that morning and you're starting your routine of, okay, I need to get my nutrition right and hydrate and make sure I use the bathroom and, and head off to the race. And then as you get closer and closer to the start line, there's more people and it's just, I don't know, it's, it's an uplifting feeling that, um, yeah, there's a euphoria to it that most people run for that feeling at the end. But you, as you said, you kind of get that at the beginning, and then all you have to do is bridge the gap. And it's it seems a lot easier than the training, the race itself, most of the time. Do you have people that you run with when you do, say, Beach to Beacon? Uh, I do. My wife is. Uh, we ran it. I can't remember. It was probably seven or eight years ago, and we ran together. It was actually kind of an incentive um, at the restaurant. It was just after Seamus was born. It was part of that get get back in, in shape kind of time, and we printed off T-shirts at 5:55, and they actually had the slogan on the back that said, "The belly rules the mind," and we all had anyone that was going to run the race with us. Obviously, got a T-shirt. And they also would come back to the house, and I was they'd have the night off, and I was going to cook for them. We get the night off and come back, and the beer and the wine and the food is on me, and I'm going to cook. And and there was um, there was a good six or seven of us that ran, and uh, which was a considerable percentage of the staff, given the year when the restaurant was much smaller. But um, for the most part, no, I actually uh, I train pretty much by myself. Hours are very strange. Um, up until a year ago, um, we lost our, our dog, but I would take our Rottweiler out in the woods with me, deep in the woods, because he liked to run as well, and he just could not be contained on a leash. 
and so he would be free in the woods and he was a rottweiler so he would upset people so we would have to we would have to be by ourselves um, occasionally michelle would go go with us but uh, so it's a very interesting dynamic in that all of my training is is pretty much solo and then and most of it in the woods and then the races for the most part are these uh, road races with thousands and thousands of people so it really creates a, a real different dynamic a different feeling that and I, I like it both ways how are you impacted by the bystanders um, I, I you know I, I think sometimes I have found myself not impacted at all if I'm running really fast it's almost like I can't hear them and then other times I'm kind of ditzing along and you know I'll go over I'll give them high fives you know I'll interact it, and it's it's kind of a funny thing it's like they are part of the scene they're part of the scene and, and a huge part of the support and I really enjoyed them at this year's Beach to Beacon not that I didn't in the past I think I was just comparing Paris to Cape Elizabeth you know great distance and in the two distances, if that makes sense. Um, but I just felt that there were such, so many of them, I guess, because you're talking about a 10 kilometer race with, in Paris, there were stretches at the end in particular where you're running through this park way in the western part of the city that, that you're just running through the woods and there was no one out there and you really were like, oh, I could really use a little bush right now, a little help. And so when you did come to these water stations and pockets, it was just, it was really fantastic to get the support. And I thought one thing that was nice about Paris is they actually had your name on your bib and where you're from, your country. So even though you're miles and miles away from home and the support system I had over there was my wife, my cousin, and my two boys, it was just past them once, uh, you'd hear people say, oh, Steve, go, oh, Steve. And I'm like, who knows me out here? And, and it was just really nice. But um, it, I said, I said, okay, if we're not going to run to Beach to Beacon next year, we need to go and just bring the boys and just for, for supporting others' sake, you know. But she said, I want to run the Beach to Beacon next year. I said, well, great, we'll, we'll run it. Well, it seems like you should be able to do both. Yes, you could do both. It, it's a matter of someone needs to take the kids. If we're both running, now we need someone to find the kids and get back to the kids and then get the kids to the race, you know. But uh, that's not that hard either, really. Yeah, I've done that too. Yeah. And that's also interesting. I mean, my, I, my kids, when I was, I think I was in my heavy racing phase when my kids were quite young, and they remember going to the races when they were little, and my brothers and sisters would help out with that. And that's also interesting for them to know that their parents are complete people that do other things other than just be parents. Yes, and, and a lot of the reason for kind of staying fit is, is for them to see that this is a very important thing regardless of how much you work you need to take care of your body as well and i grew up and my dad was um was quite athletic and, and maintained a very strong kind of athletic routine and i do and i remember it i remember him you know his routine was okay it was it was push-ups and sit-ups it was kind of it was a while ago so it was so many push-ups so many sit-ups okay then he'd shower then we'd come out and he would polish his shoes up put on a suit and off he'd go for work but he would do this every day and he was leaving the house before we were leaving for school so i was up to, to witness it and it i remember it clearly and i want my kids to to remember that as well just because i think it's so important to have athletics for the sake of 
for the sake of staying on the straight and narrow, so to speak, and also just the camaraderie that comes with it and the routine and the balance. And I just think it's so important on so many different levels. I also feel like Maine is pretty much one of the best places that one could train most of the year. Some, I, mean, I train throughout the year, so it doesn't bother me when it snows. It's cold, but it doesn't bother me. But most of the year, it is just a beautiful and brilliant place to be. It's perfect, actually, because it doesn't get too hot, generally. I mean, we're coming out of the summer here, and, and it was a warm one. But I'm with you. I prefer it to be cooler. I think it's a lot easier to train when it's, when it's cooler to cold. I mean, Paris Marathon was... April 3rd so the training was done throughout the winter and it was it was hard to get out there and run you know your your 20 milers by all means it was hard to get out the door but two miles in I, I was delighted with it you know yes you had to put on some extra layers and this and that but and the summer I mean it, it's not so brutally hot that you can't train so I agree with you it's perfect and the outdoors in Maine. I mean, you, you can't beat it. I mean, to, to be able to, or to, most of my, my running, trail running and whatnot is in Cape Elizabeth. And so it's in around Crescent Beach and you're looking out at Richmond Island and you're, you're just constantly looking up and distracted by beauty. Then the next thing you know, it's, oh, I'm, I'm done for the day. Wow, that's fantastic. So. See, and I'm the same way. I, I, I can't run on treadmills now. I feel like I'm spoiled. If somebody says, you go do a five-miler on that treadmill over there, I'm like, no, I'd, I'd rather go on the city sidewalks if I'm not in Maine. Because, I mean, there is something about being in the outdoors, and I, like you, I trail run, and I get the ocean, and I get island, and I get... And it's so um, it's so invigorating in a way that's not just physical. It is. It, it, it kind of... It hides a bit of the, the vigor, you know, the, the... Sorry, the rigor of it and accentuates the, the vigor, if that's said well enough, um, in that, yes, and, and I think that sense of accomplishment is something else, too, that you actually did get up and go out there and get it and, and see, you see things that you, you don't even expect to see, the wildlife component to it. You know, I almost stepped on a hedgehog the other day, and then I was jumped over a small little garter snake, you know, and uh, I'm glad I was alone because I jumped 10 feet, and I'm actually not afraid of snakes. But those things you're not going to certainly find on a treadmill, you know. I can't stand the treadmill. Well, and this is not to say people who run treadmills, I'm 100% behind them. So anybody who's listening, if you run on a treadmill, you go. Because that's great. Do it any way that works for you. More power to you, I say. Absolutely. Yes. But I, I think it's also interesting when I'm listening to you that... I mean, because of the job that I do here, I don't have to cook the food. I don't have to create menus, but I eat a lot of the food and I go out a lot and I go to a lot of events. And for me, it's very similar. You know, there, there is a very important balance that takes place. Um, it, it, there's this understanding that if I'm going to have delicious food at Petite Jacqueline or at 555, then I absolutely have to get up the next day and make sure that my body feels balanced. Yeah, I do. I think it's... Uh you know, I'm, I'm dating myself a bit too, but, um, you know, it's been decades of, of doing just that. And I find now if I don't do it, if I go for a stretch of time 
that I that I get out of balance to, to some degree whether it's my nutrition falls off or this past weekend for example Labor Day weekend and you know a lot of family was up and this and that and we didn't really have a routine and I was able to do a lot of activities we spent a lot of time at the beach we were hiking we were in the kayaks this and that but I didn't have my built-in run kayak or mountain bike timed workout and I felt a little off kilter and I just think it it is so nice to have that outlet which is has only every benefit to it which also helps keep you grounded balanced whatever you want to say it's just it's such a nice convenient aspect of it i mean it's just an extra added bonus outside of the the health you know positive effects of, of it all it's interesting to hear your story of of when you had gained some weight and it, then your child was going to be born and then you said no no we, this can't continue because i i see this over and over again personally but also as a doctor that it seems as though especially young men because young women they have babies and there are other things that happen to their bodies that continue to keep them aware but young men especially there's something about there's some time between being in college or being in your early 20s if you don't go to college just working and then somehow in your 20s, late 20s, early 30s, waking up to the fact that maybe you haven't really been tuned into your body that much. And Harding Lee Smith came on the show. He's lost a bunch of weight. He's a local chef. This, he's a little older than his late 20s. But, but he came to this realization. I think Justin Walker, I don't know that he gained any weight in particular, but he's a biker. So it seems like it's not only a young man thing, but maybe even male restaurateur chef thing is that possible it i don't could know be i mean larry matthews uh is a good friend of mine back bay grill and he has uh he dropped a lot of weight got himself really fit with crossfit i was talking to him about about that um jonathan cartwright who was the chef down at uh, the, the um white barn inn he's an avid cyclist i mean a very good one i mean he's a very fit individual and i've always known him to be that way but i haven't known him for, for all of his time as being a chef. So I, it's hard to work with food um, and not let it get to you because you constantly have to be tasting the food. And most of the restaurant food, I mean, there's there's no secret really to it. The, the difference of what we're doing in the restaurant is that you're not doing at home is that we are not thinking about the excesses. The, yes, there's more salt, there's more fat, and you know, and more acid. I'd say those are probably the big three that we pump those up and balance them to create these these tastes and flavors and sensations and you know meat dishes that are that are so satisfying. But you couldn't eat them every night, you know. And don't get me wrong, not everything on the menu is that way. The menus themselves have a balance so that those that are health conscious and whatnot can certainly find that fair as well. But to generalize, for the most part, people will go out to eat to eat food that they can't eat at home and it's my job to taste all of those foods throughout all of the day and it's very hard to determine what your caloric intake is or fat intake because you're constantly taking a tasting spoon and having a bite I need to taste that I need to taste that I need to taste this um, and so th I think it's inevitable you come to that realization that wow I, I, I need to check myself a little bit because you will just put on pounds very quickly very easily 
there must be something also about the pleasure that you take. I can't imagine that you would do this if you didn't find pleasure in food. And that's a very sensory experience, but also running is a very sensory experience. Biking, kayaking, there must be something about your physical makeup that that makes all of these things kind of have some relevance to one another. I have never really thought about it that way, but it certainly stands to reason. I would I would think, sure, you make a very good point. I always, I never really equated the two. It's not a separation between work and, and play. It's not that black and white, but um, I don't know. It's it's interesting to, to think about it that way because I haven't done so yet. Well, I appreciate you coming here and talking to me and... Um makes me want to run honestly the Paris Marathon anybody who tells me a story about a, gr- a race I think oh I want to do that that's the, that is the funny thing about being a runner is it's not a, even the time it's like oh that experience I want that experience that sounds great and it sounds as if whatever it was whatever sense of accomplishment that you had out of that it makes you want to go back even just to cheer on the people for the Paris Marathon Yes, we're always trying to get back to Paris. My wife is of French descent, and her her dad was French, and, and of course that whole side. And so, and we have French restaurants, so we, we try to get to Paris whenever we can. Um, but I will make a point of getting back there for the marathon. Whether or not I'll run it again, I, it remains to be seen. My wife has no interest at this point in running a marathon. She's four years younger than I am. Four years ago, I had no interest in running a marathon either. Uh, so who knows? And the two boys um certainly the 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 elder is he's developed an interest now in running so he'll run some short distance stuff with us but um no to to go back and support it to see it it was such a i think there was over sixty thousand people running the race and it is absolutely gorgeous at the uh, you know at the beginning of the race and then you're out Paris is only so big, so you have to get outside of the city, and you're running in the country effectively for, you know, the middle portion. Then you run back to the city, and then you're in the west uh, for a portion. But when you are in the city and you're running that amount of time, regardless of the distance, you're just running for that long, and your mind just goes to a different place. And then you kind of look up, and you're like, "Oh yeah, there's the Eiffel Tower." It's like, wow, you know, there's just a sensation to it. Like, yeah, that was kind of part of it was like oh, we're going to trade for one marathon let's couple it up with a business trip and a culture trip for the kids and we'll run the marathon at the beginning and then we'll you know enjoy paris at the end of it do you have any races planned uh, i'm doing it just a turkey trot five miler down in long island where my wife's brother and family live um obviously around thanksgiving and uh one of the guys that i played basketball with was proposing a a two-peak uh, hike race. I, I'm not exactly sure where. It's one of the ski areas that's in the fall, and he's he's proposing that we do this trail race. As he knows I like to run on trails, but I'm not sure I want to run up a ski hill down it and then up it again. But we'll see. It's I'm always open to it. What um, the beach to beacon this year was was so enjoyable. Um, don't get me wrong. The, the Paris Marathon that was very enjoyable and very rewarding but it was it was grueling it was very hot that day and and that all my training was in the cold so i wasn't very pleased with my results per se um overall the thing was fantastic but i just really enjoyed the beach to beacon this year the weather the, the crowds the uh everything just seemed to come off it was one of those races where i'm sure you 
you know, some days you feel very good and others you don't. And it was a last minute thing. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do it or not. And I kind of got up and I had the bib and I just walked up and right as the, the gun was going off, so to speak, and it just felt great. The whole race was one of those, ah, oh, this is fantastic, you know. And then at the end, it was one of the guys I play ball with lives right there. So instead of getting on the bus, I called him I'm like, any chance you can give me a ride back home? And he's like, I'm going that way right now, pick me up. And I was back at the house. I could walk from the, my house to the start line, obviously. But the whole thing was like an hour and a half when I was back home. Like, I'm so glad I did it. And I really had such a great time doing it. Well, I hope that whatever your next, whether you do the peak to peak thing or whether you just go with that turkey trot, um, but I'm sure that you will enjoy it. And I hope that you have continued enjoyment with your running training, because that's ultimately the most important thing from what I can tell in this life. It's not really about the running of the races. It's really just about the joy of the run from what I can tell. I agree. Um, I've been speaking with Steve Corey, who along with his wife, Michelle, uh, owns 555 Petite Jacqueline and the Portland Patisserie and um, is also a runner and father and man of the world and extremely busy. So thank you so much for coming in and having this conversation with me today and for doing the work that you do. Uh, it's been my pleasure, truly. Thank you. Experience chef and owner Harding Lee Smith's newest hit restaurant, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Maine seafood at its finest. Joining sister restaurants, The Front Room, The Grill Room, and The Corner Room, this newly renovated two-story restaurant at 86 Commercial Street on Custom House Wharf overlooks scenic Portland Harbor. Watch Lobsterman bring in the daily catch as you enjoy baked stuffed lobster, raw bar, and wood-fired flatbreads. For more information, visit theroomsportland.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Ruth Hamill, Joanne Perrin, Alan Bunker, and Jean Jack. For complete show details, please visit our website, artcollectormain.com. This summer, it was my great pleasure to spend time on the water watching the um, first, which I'm hoping will be first annual, Casco Bay Island Swim Run. And today I have with me Jeff Cole, who is the co-director of the Casco Bay Island Swim Run. He has been involved in multi-sport and endurance since 2000, racing in sprints to Ironman distances. He's a USA Triathlon certified race director and organized the first Casco Bay Island Swim Run in August. And you also are the president of Cole Harrison Insurance in Kennebunk and have married 37 years. Wow. Got a lot of stuff going on there. You're a busy man. It's been a while, right? Yeah, I, I would say so. So when I say that this was the first annual, I don't, I don't want to put it out there if that's not actually going to be the case. This is a pretty big deal to get it going in the first place. It, it was, and we have, uh, we have big plans to be here again next year and, and further on in the calendar. So tell me about this. It was really interesting for me to watch because we had our boat off um, peaks and we were watching the final leg. We were watching, basically this is, you start on an island and then you run that island and then you hop in the water and then you swim to the next island and then you run that island and you keep doing this until you get to that final island, which is peaks. And then you run up the hill and, and then you're done. But it's more than that. You're also hitched to a buddy. You, you, you are. You don't necessarily have to be, but that's, that's one of the, um, the early um, 
elements that was established with the race in Sweden where it all began in 2006. It's a team race, as you said. It's not a relay. So you're, you're partnered with either another woman or, or, or a man or a mixed team. Um, and the, the, the tether offers a, a, not only an element of safety um, in conditions that would warrant the race director or his or his organization to to mandate its use, but it provides a strategic advantage as well in that competitors have to stay within a 10 meter distance of one another. And so where it's very easy to become gapped while you're swimming and not realizing where your partner is, having that connection keeps you together. I also um, heard that there's a very different approach to competition, whereas if you see somebody and they're struggling, somebody falls, you help them. That's that's part of Swim Run. It's um, not only is it um, an event that's intended to utilize the the local geography and nature and the environment that you're in, but also the social aspect of it, and and that would be to reach out and help a competitor or a fellow team that's that's in the midst of not necessarily maybe having. Um, having minor difficulties, t- tired or fatigued, but where they've perhaps been injured um, or um, you know need some significant assistance. So this is different from many of the races that I've been in where somebody gets injured, they go down, they wait for the medical team to come in to help them out. Yeah, the, the kind of the, the unique part of swim run is um, you're in areas that uh, may not be uh, suitable to have an immediate response from medical teams so uh, absolutely so that's um, that's one of the elements to the to the race that's a little that's a little different so let me back up a little bit because I said I was I was there at peaks but this race started on Shabig, I think it did it started in Chandler's Cove on Shabig on the uh, on the Casco Bay lines wharf and um, and began with a almost a two mile run on Shabig before they entered the water and swam to Little Shabig. And from there, and from Little Shabig, then they swam across Chandler's Cove to uh, to Cleves Landing on Long Island, then uh, uh, a jaunt over part of Long Island to an area called the Nubble, which is a very beautiful part of that of that coastline. Um, and they dropped in through a slot in the rocks and swam. Uh, across uh, Shark Cove to uh, Singing Sands at South Beach, and then a, a, a short swim over to Vale Island, which Vale Island is an uninhabited, um, undeveloped small island off the coast along where they did a rock shoreline scramble, um, which had a tendency to really slow them down because it's a very bold shore. Then they swam back to Long Island, ran to, the, uh, to Fowler's Beach on Long, swam to... Um, um, oh, Peaks Island. I'm forgetting. It's going by memory. Over to Peaks Island, Evergreen Landing at Peaks Island. Then probably the the most scenic part of of that element to the course was a run through the Peaks Island Land Preserve and the trails there. Um, a very wild part of of Peaks Island, if you can imagine that being so close to the city of Portland. It's 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 quite um, beautiful. Then from there, swim over to Cushing's Island, um, run on Cushing's, swim then to Fort Scammell on the end of House Island, um, traverse the fort uh, remnants, and then come down onto the beach on the east end of, uh, of uh, House Island, and then finally the swim over to Peaks Island and the finish line. 
There was a lot of coordination that had to take place around this because there's active ferries that go back and forth and then you have boaters and when I was out there there are all kinds of pleasure boaters, power boaters, sail boaters, kayakers. I mean this was a very busy Sunday morning that this was happening. There were a lot of moving parts um, and um, you know the race couldn't have happened and happened as, as successfully as it did without um, the support of the U.S. Coast Guard um, Casco Bay Islands Ferry, um, Nick Mavidonis and his team there. Um, also the, the Portland Harbor Master, um, Keith Battles, he was terrific. Um, and not, uh, not last but and certainly not least would, would be the team from Long Island and their public uh, safety people. They, they, uh, they deployed a force of about 15 people throughout the day and worked very, very hard to keep the, the course um, safe and secure and, and make sure that everybody had a safe event. How many people did you have compete? Uh, we started 121 teams. Um, we had registered almost 140 teams. Um, there's also there's, there's usually you know about 10% natural attrition, no shows for, for various reasons, but we started 121 teams. And these were teams that basically had to qualify and be accepted. These weren't just teams who could say, hey, I want to show up and do this. This was a very special field that you were um, gathering. It, it, it was. We had some fairly rigorous prerequisites in terms of experience and capabilities that um, people had to apply with. Um, from there, we, we hand-picked about 20 to 25 elite teams that we would call that had um, either previous swim-run experience in Sweden or had done multiple endurance events, uh, adventure racing, things of that nature. Certainly long-distance Ironman swims were, were, uh, were an important element. Um, but even so, everybody still had to meet a minimum threshold in terms of swim times. And then the, the balance of the entries then we handpicked, excuse me, we, we lottery chose the remaining 85 teams. And these were, these were tickets that, um, that went fast. They did. We were we were overwhelmed with interest. Quite frankly, when we went live with um, with seeking applications for the for the selection process, we had over six hundred applications in less than ten days. And at that point in time, we'd established only a hundred a hundred team race slots. And so it 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 was uh, it was a challenge to find um, or discriminate um, uh, various applications because most. Everybody was very well qualified to be in this race. But you're right, it wasn't the type of race that you decided on Friday that you were going to do the next day like, like a 5K. So why do you think so many people were interested in doing something that, frankly, is quite difficult? I, I think, um, well, certainly our target uh, audience were, were established adventure endurance racers. Um, and w within that subset, um, there's a large number of people that, that have what I call triathlon fatigue. Um, they've done triathlons for a decade or more. Um, it's pretty much um, cut and dried what's involved with that. And I think that they're looking for something new. And it, it, it became obvious to us very early on that this hit a chord. What is the total... Um, I think when, when we first heard about this at Maine Magazine, we actually, somebody went through and they calculated how 
how much swimming this inc included involved and how much running this involved. I don't remember the numbers, but I'm sure you know them. It was um, it was four miles of combined swimming and pretty close to 12 miles of, of sh uh, overland work between beach runs, shore scrambles, road work, trail work, about 12 miles. So 16 miles combined. Which is pretty incredible considering that it's not I mean I've, I've run races but you're on the road <laughs> you run down the road you run up a hill you run down the hill you run back around to the finish this is you're not talking that you're talking trail runs you're talking rock scrambles you're talking and it's not even it's not even pool swimming you're talking open water swimming yeah the the, uh, the natural environment provides um, some some very interesting challenges that you don't ordinarily encounter when you're doing a triathlon with a with a nice paved surface road um, a nice buoy marked swim course that you just need to look ahead and see where those buoys are and where to go with swim run you, you need to have some sense of being able to orient yourself with a compass and look across a, an expanse of water and know that from your map there is a swim exit point 1300 yards across this expanse of water that's just about over in that direction and um, and also taking into account the the, 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 um, the variabilities of current and tide and wind and waves um, so it yeah, yeah it's 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 quite different and and I think because of that that's why it attracted so many people when we were watching we noticed that it wasn't necessarily a straight line that people would take to swim from one island to the next. And sometimes if there was somebody, a, a, a duo right in front of you, then you could follow that duo. But sometimes you're just like, oh, it's roughly over there. And we saw people go way over to one side, way over to the next. We kept having to move our boats. Um, and I think, that that's an, I think that that's what you've referred to when you say it's... Uh, it's a little different than what we're used to. We're not giving people all the information. We're saying roughly this is where you go, have at it. Yeah, some of those diversions were probably unintentional as opposed to intentional um, with the current and so forth. T later in the race where you were down toward Cushing's and House Island, Peaks Island, the outgoing current got a little stronger than, than it had been when they started up at, um, up at Shabig. So that may have taken them a little bit by surprise, and they had to alter their course. And, and certainly um, following the team in front of you isn't necessarily a guaranteed option that you're going to land where you want to be. Um, so it's, it's, those, um, it's those nuances to swim run that, that, are, that are different and, and, and I, I think became more fully appreciated as the day went on. Yeah, I, I think it was striking to me the number of people who were almost at peaks and they would just stop for a minute and rest. And I, we could hear them across the water, I'm so tired. And the other one would say, it's okay, keep going, we're almost there. But but that fatigue factor, and when you're talking about this current, and I just think about, like, you've gotten this many miles into this race and, and the end is in sight, but you still, your body's just like, okay, okay. Yeah, and, and surprisingly, there weren't... Um there were only four teams that didn't finish, so out of 121, 117 finished and pushed through that fatigue factor that you that you reference. Beyond physical fatigue, I think there was there was mental fatigue and and emotional fatigue. Some of these teams um, hadn't worked together with swim run to any large degree as they may have put in in race preparation for any other race because this was so different some certainly did we had a we had a pre-event um, in mid-july just as kind of a small test a part of the course um, and and it was obvious with just a few of those teams that the the struggles that they had to endure were, were quite different and it 
it played upon their ability to be able to interact in a in a positive way toward the end of the day and and we saw some of that on race day that there were some teams that finished and they split up and they were gone <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine being tethered to somebody that by the end of all of this running and swimming, you're like, yeah, I am just done with you because this just didn't work out that well for me at all. Um, and I remember actually it was interesting during the summer because we live on an island that's connected by a causeway. I remember we would see footprints that would go from one side of the causeway to the other. And we wondered why where there's like they're wet, wet footprints. And we learned that there were actually some people who were out swimming around in the cove that had walked across the causeway. So that's also interesting, this idea of where do you train? Yeah, I mean, for anybody that's that's uh, proximate to Casco Bay, um, they had the upper hand in, in being able to know where their outpoints were, um, uh, understand what, what kind of train they were going to be on, that it wasn't going to be a, a first-time um, view for them on race day. So um, I, I think I know who you're referring to on some of those people that, that, that went out and trained, and they, they definitely had, had an upper hand for sure. So, Jeff, you have had a successful business. You've um, you graduated from Berwick Academy and the University of Maine. Your family's been in Maine a long time. You've been married 37 years. You have two grown children. Why would you put yourself through triathlons and endurance competitions, things like Ironmans? I mean, you already had a lot going on. Why would you take this on, and then why would you become a coach, and then why would you go to the next level and organize an entire event? I think because it's fun, and it it's um, it's out of the box for me in terms of what I do as as a, in my profession, um, and it, um, it it's an interesting question, and I don't know that I have the perfect answer for it, other than to say I enjoy it immensely. Um, the the um, the mental part about putting together all the working pieces to make an event like this um, successfully happen. That to me was a challenge that I thoroughly enjoyed throughout this. Um, we we were we were admonished quite early on that that uh, you know what are you, you what are you doing? You're going to go on some of these private islands. You'll you'll never get permission. Um, you know these people are very cloistered and and very private. You'll you'll never be able to go on that island. And that to me um, set a bar that I wanted to be able to um, uh, overcome. And uh, and we did, and I think part of that was I'm I'm not someone coming from a way that just wants to drop in here and take advantage of people's largesse, not at all. Um, we we wanted to show them that we respected their privacy immensely, and and that was one of the reasons why we didn't hold a that mid July test event on any part of the course that involved private property. We stayed completely on on public lands for that. I didn't want to wear out the welcome. We we were very careful about pledging that we would leave their homelands in in a shape better than we found them, and we did. Our, our course monitors did an excellent job in picking up trash and 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 litter that that our racers didn't leave. Um, and and more importantly, I I think that our our charity beneficiary, the the Travis Mills Foundation, um, resonated with a lot of people in the area that that know who that that individual is and the sacrifices that he made and what he intends to do um, from his experience. Um, I think that that um, aided us in being able to secure those types of permission to to get onto private property. 
for listeners who aren't familiar with the Travis Mills Foundation, give us a little background. Um, Travis was a staff sergeant in the U.S. Army, and in, um, I think it was 2012, um, he put his rucksack down while he was in Afghanistan, and uh, just below the rucksack was an IED, and Travis lost all four of his um, of his limbs. Uh, he's one of only five surviving quadruple amputees from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and he's a rem- rem- miraculous young man. He's 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 taken this experience and he's 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 moving forward with um, his goal to transform. Uh, a large estate up in the Belgrade Lakes area to be a retreat for wounded warriors. Um, All expenses paid for their families and their children for weeks at a time. Um, And so our our race benefited him um, with a a donation of $10,000 at the uh, the finish line. Travis was there with his father-in-law, Craig, and um, um, we we're, we're really pleased and proud that he um, affiliated with us, and we're pleased to say that he'll be with us next year and hopefully going forward. Why did you choose his organization as a charity? Um, I, I think because his story is quite unique, and and there's a main connection to it too, and a direct main connection. His wife is from Maine. He lives here now, um, and he he intends to use. Um, uh, another part of Maine, the Belgrade Lakes area, that's 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 beautiful, to enhance the experience that he wants to be able to provide for for other wounded warriors and and make their life better. It must be also an interesting irony to participate in a race where you probably are going to benefit from having all of your limbs, and be putting the proceeds of this race towards an individual's foundation who doesn't have that anymore. His motto, Lisa, is um, never give up, never give in. And uh, I think that 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 was a part of the the essence of our race that I, I think was meaningful to, to people that came here to, to do the race is that this was going to be a very tough day for, for most of them. It was very different, um, very different uh, conditions to race in. And, you know, despite... Uh, maybe some discomfort during the day that they may have felt um, if they could think on what what the race was doing for the Travis Mills Foundation and what he's endured and what his motto is that that would have inspired them to just keep going and I think it did. What did you learn from this last year that you will apply toward organizing future swim runs? Um, That it wasn't long enough (laughs) believe it or not um, so next next year we we hope not only to have a longer version, but we'll also have a, a much shorter version for some folks who who aren't quite at the point where they they can do something of that length, but they want to give it a try. So we'll have a we'll have a shorter course that will be uh, about two miles of combined swimming and six miles of running, um, but the longer course will will uh, will be even more challenging because it'll have close to six miles of swimming and 16 miles of running. So I'm sitting here processing this, people saying that it wasn't long enough because we, when we were watching the first people came in, they had literally been out there for hours. Yeah, the winning team was three and a half hours, which was um, a little quicker than I thought that they would, uh, they'd finish that course. 
Um, the last folks came through at about 6 hours, 6.20, so there was everything in between, but uh, it, it never ceases to amaze me how much more of a challenge people are willing to subject themselves to. So we have, we've got some layouts for a, a, longer, um, a longer course. Well, I know that we will be covering the swim run through the magazines here. And um, I'm sure we will be back out there watching you next year. Do we have a date yet for we 2017? We do. It is the, thir- it's the 13th of August next year, Sunday the 13th, basically the same weekend um, in, in the month. And um, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll, we'll still have the welcome mat um, uh, throughout those islands. Uh, I have no reason to believe otherwise. And so we, uh, we're already thinking about it and working on it. We will have the website for the Casco Bay Island Swim Run on our show notes page. We have been speaking with Jeff Cole, who is the co-director of the Casco Bay Islands Swim Run. Thanks so much for bringing this to our lovely Casco Bay, and uh, we look forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me. You have been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 266, Racing Maine. Our guests have included Jeff Cole and Steve Corey. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful1 on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Racing Maine show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, The Rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. Here's a clip from our upcoming interview with Susan Hunter. Also, um, it strikes me that you are wanting to help stem the brain drain. Mm -hmm. Um, The University of Maine, it it offers so many things depending upon what your desires are. But one of the things that it has been doing, and it's got to be doing it for at least a decade now, is scholarship money to the top students in Mm -hmm. high schools around the state. Mm -hmm. So... And, then, and my son took advantage of that. So he got this great high-quality education, and he got it really through having a full scholarship. He got a scholarship. To the University of Maine. Mm-hmm. And that's so forward-thinking, to be able to say, we really don't want you to have to leave the state to get a good education. Well, that's uh, something that we we have been working on, and we are, I'd say, um, 
putting even more intense focus on it, in part because the state of Maine is really looking at both a, uh, I would say, a demographic and a geographic challenge. We are the state with the oldest median age population, and we are seeing a decline in the number of high school graduates due to population decline, not because people are leaving high school. But when you look at that, you realize that the state is facing a shortage of people in the, you know, the, the teen to 20s to 30s age cohort and seeing a rise in, in those of us in my age cohort. Well, the whole state can't run. We cannot have an economy based on 1.3 million retired people. Uh, and we, we actually have to do everything we can to both um, hang on to the talent we have in the state and make it attractive to stay in the state and attract people uh, from other states. And so the, uh, we've got some programs that we've named the Maine Matters Program where we're really trying to make uh, the University of Maine more affordable for middle-income families. We have our Maine Match Program, and that program is really aimed at students who are looking at UMaine, and they're also looking at flagship uh, land-grant campuses throughout New England, so UConn, UMass Amherst, UVM, UNH, and we're, we're, we're offering a, a plan that we want to look at the financial aid package they're, they're getting there and see uh, do the best job we can to make our financial aid very attractive so that they will choose to stay in Maine and come to their flagship land-grant campus. And then for out-of-state students, we've identified six states. It's uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, Rutgers, where the flagship campuses in-state tuition is more than our in-state tuition. And so in this case, we offer a two-tiered merit award. Uh, so this is an academic merit award. Tier one students from those states, if they apply and they are granted a tier one award, they pay to come to the University of Maine, they pay what they would pay to go to their flagship campus. So it's this flagship match. Um, and if they get a two tier a tier two award, they would pay more than tier one, but still not the full cost of being an out of state student. And it has resulted in a thirty I think the number is now thirty eight percent increase in confirmed out of state students for this coming fall. So it looks like it's being successful. And I'll just say one more thing on this, and that's we see when people graduate from UMaine from out of state. It's about 15 to 20 percent stay in Maine for their first job. So even if we don't change the percentage, if we just jack up the number of people and the percentage stays the same, we will be retaining more people. We will be attracting people, educating them, and more of them will stay in state. Uh, and that, that will really benefit the state of Maine. Do you think that you, as a university system, are benefiting from the recognition that Maine is a great place to live, a great place to visit? I know that what I do mm -hmm. with Maine Magazine, that's yeah. sort of my position is predicated on that. Yeah, yeah. And I've lived here all my life. And is this also something that you think that students are coming to recognize as they're applying to go to college and wanting to experience themselves? Well, I th yes. I mean, the short answer is yes. It seems to have taken off a bit more. And I think um, in part that's because we part of it is the financial aid packaging and the, that. Part of it is uh, marketing and, and frankly being, I would say, more um, 
aggressive and more perhaps professional, having people that really know how to do that. Uh, we've we've done a much better campaign of PR. I mean, you know, billboards on the highways in New England, uh, uh, radio and TV spots. I mean, then you get you, and then we had a, a firm that we hired that did uh, some marketing for us, and they were able to get really good stories in newspapers. I mean, we had a front page story in the Boston Globe, the Hartford Courant covered us. There was mention, there was something in the Washington Post. When you get that kind of coverage, then it piques people's interest and then more people start to come and look at the campus and then they spend a day there and they come to an open house and and all of that it, it sort of it it frankly gins up interest which is great because then more people discover you and they realize that there really is something uh, when you make the trip to Orono, Maine there's really something to find and that's why we encourage people to come visit especially people that haven't either haven't ever been Thank you for listening to Love, Maine Radio. We hope you can join us for next week's program.